Welcome back to Let Me Ask You the podcast. As always, I am joined by my friend, my colleague, my co-host, and the right-hand man for a very long time to Pablo Escobar, Jake. Still haven't found him or me. Found me a little bit, not all the way though. <laughs> Just here. also as usual, we are not joined by our sponsor, Raid would Shadow be sponsor? Legends. Raid fucking shit, dude. Look at we were talking to Jaya, right? We were talking to her in confidence. We're like, Jaya, listen, if there's one company that reflects our morals and values, what would you think that is? And she said, Listen, guys, I've listened to about five, six, thirteen of your episodes, and at this point, I think Raid Shadow Legends is probably your best bet. And that's what we've been saying. We've been saying that's that from, from day one. Okay. We are joined today by Dr. Jaya. Jaya, tell us just a little bit, brief explanation about what you do. So I'm a neuroscientist. Um, I currently work in what's called program development um, as a contractor at the National Institute on Aging in the Division of Neuroscience. Um, and before that, I have over 10 years of experience in doing research experiments in neuroscience, uh, cognitive neuroscience, um, in using all kinds of techniques, trying to understand basically how our brains are actually interpreting the world around us um, in a way that makes sense, in a way that is meaningful, and for us to then um, generate the appropriate response to like, for example, if the doorbell is ringing, you need to go open the door. That would be the appropriate response, not answer your phone. So how our brain takes the information from our outside world and then processes it and then generates an appropriate response. So that's what I've been studying for most of my career. Um, any, um, yeah. any experiments of notoriety? Anything that you're uh, particularly proud of? Well, there's certainly studies that I've, I'm proud of um, that I've done throughout my career. Uh, the one I would say that was the most um, fun uh, was when one of the studies I did with um, human participants. This was during my master's degree uh, when I was working in a lab that was doing um, visual neuroscience and decision neuroscience. So we were trying to understand how, again, our brains make decisions. So I actually ended up running essentially a gambling study. Um, and so we would have participants come in and we would give them 20 bucks. It's not a lot. It's not like high stakes gambling. Um, and then we did various permutations and combinations on the back end where we played with um, things like risk and reward. Um, um, so in, in terms of like the, the how much you could win compared to how much risk there was of losing. Um, on a trial by trial basis. So we played around with all of that. And then another um, permutation that we did of that experiment was actually having people come in and then play for themselves. Uh, so they, that, that is to say, whatever they won at the end of that, um, they would keep. Um, and then we had them do the experiment a second time and whatever they earned, uh, they would end up donating to a charity, which they knew up front. Um, a charity of their choice. So what we were trying to disentangle there, for example, was do people change their strategies when they know that they're playing for themselves versus when they are playing for um, donating to a charity of their choice? So we did all kinds of um, permutations of that particular experiment. And that was a lot of fun because I would be sitting in the next room and I would just hear people swear or get really excited when they want money um, and things like that. So that was really fun just from like a human behavioral standpoint. And what did those results show? Were people more willing to do better when it was for themselves? Um, so actually it was incredibly variable. So we ended up not being able to publish it um, also so because- yeah, because it was very different on an individual basis. So, for example, some people would take bigger risks when they were playing for themselves because mm -hmm. that's what they cared about more or or cared about less. Like it really depended very granularly on the individual level. And yeah. then some people would take more rational, quote unquote, rational decisions when they were playing for a charity. Um, and so when we tried to analyze the results at the group level, it was very inconclusive, as you said. 
But at the individual level, um, it would have been fun to be able to explore that a little bit more. But unfortunately, we also ran out of funding because, you know, these kinds of experiments get a little bit expensive because we're giving prize money to every participant uh, and, you know, we have to pay them whatever they win. Um, so at a certain point, we just had to stop running that particular experiment. Yeah, they're probably less willing to um, commit to risky behavior because they knew the consequences of that. And yeah. like, it's easy to accept the consequences for yourself because you're like, oh, it's no big deal. Exactly. But when you're accepting the consequences on the behalf of someone else, you're like, oh, okay, maybe I should like take a second and think this through. Yeah. This is big. <laughs> it's like yeah. $20. <laughs> I was gonna, like, why do you think that is, though? Um, so, you know, everybody's different and everybody's uh, raised to value things differently. Um, and this also like brings into into you know the whole nature versus nurture question, um, which I'm also happy to to talk about later. But uh, so essentially, like if if you know donating to charity is more important to you as a person than making money for yourself, which in in enough of itself is a is a separate question. And then you have to add factor in the fact that everybody has a different personality. And so some people are naturally a little bit more risk averse, right? So some people are more scared of taking that big risk uh, for that high reward um, versus some people are just more of gamblers or they, they want to take that big risk because they get like an adrenaline uh, rush from it and they are risk seeking. So there's like two levels of variability that ca that factor into these kinds of studies. And do you think that based on maybe not that alone, but I'm sure that that like helps draw like a little bit of a conclusion. Do you think that we are in fact a product of our environment? Yeah, absolutely. And and there's actually now scientific proof of how that happens as well. It's a process called epigenetic modification. Um, so our essentially nature in that nature versus nurture kind of analogy is is our DNA. So we get it from our parents, our grandparents. It's inherited, and that's what we're born with. And there are certain things that are are written, so to speak, right? But if you look at like there have been some studies looking at twins, and if you look at twins, they don't necessarily have the same personality. You know, at the at the neuroscience level, if you look, they, the way they make decisions is not exactly the same. They're shaped by their experiences differently, even if the experiences are similar, uh, but not exactly the same. Um, and so there's something that happens where, where DNA essentially codes for various proteins and things um, that physically make up your body. But then epigenetics is a way to like control how that is actually expressed. So the the reigning theories now state that like epigenetics is the way by which that whole experience modulates our behavior and our growth and our learning and then eventually our 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 behavior as adults. And does that same trait epigenetics does that carry into like other species as well or is it unique yeah. in humans? No, it's present in every animal. Yeah. So how does that affect other species compared to people? Yeah. Like if, if you conducted a similar experiment with monkeys, right? And yeah. again, we're, we are not experts on this podcast. I'm literally talking out of my ass right now. So just please tell me that I'm wrong. This is actually, but, a, let me ask you first, because we are not experts. This Jaya is, is doctorate. <laughs> Okay. Jaya, is an expert. Jaya has a fucking doctorate. <laughs> she is the smartest person on the screen. <laughs> oh yeah that's why she's the biggest <laughs> so if you if you conducted a similar experiment with like say monkeys yeah. right because genetically speaking we're the most we're the closest to like monkeys mm -hmm. that's right yeah mm -hmm. yeah would chimpanzees yeah yeah so so first of all would they even be able to understand the concept of like okay there's two options here you can play for yourself or you can play for others and if they even were able to grasp that concept wouldn't they be more likely to um reward themselves versus like reward the community Right. So, okay. So that's a different uh, level. Altruism is something that has not been seen widely in the animal kingdom. So mm -hmm. this, uh, but that being said, there is a lot of, um, of, of species that do help conspecifics when there is a benefit to them. So that's not the same as altruism. 
but then philosophically, you can always argue is altruism like do does anyone ever do anything with absolutely zero gain for themselves? Right. Well, I don't. So, I, 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 well, right. Don't don't other species like don't they sort of like do things for the sole purpose of the survival of their species? Um, yeah, like, but you, you could argue that for humans as well, because we're talking about, so, so by that analogy would be survival of humans, right? So we might yeah. want to help poor humans because we want the species as a whole to survive. Yeah, but uh, then you have like people that like willingly don't have kids and stuff and are just very careless and um, sort of like take things for granted. Like I, I, I genuinely, I don't know if that's if that's true to life, but it just seems like we're less like instinctual when it comes to, to that kind of stuff. So I think I understand what you're getting at. So uh, definitely there's something unique in the kind of altruistic behaviors we see mm. in humans compared to other animals. I completely agree uh, there. So, but then, you know, if you look closely enough, so one of the things I really love about animals and the animal world is that we know, we don't know that much about it actually. Like, there really? are more species of insects uh, and and actually new species are still being discovered and um and and there's these kinds of behaviors that are really quite fascinating so if you look at bees for example um they're considered a super organism and so even though they're individual bee members the colony itself is kind of an organism right and so the individual members will do things that sacrifice for the whole. And that's like at the organism, at the, at the super organism level, it's pretty sophisticated behaviors. Yeah. But it's, it's like, but like, so like bees will do that to, yeah. to benefit the colony as a whole. Like they don't yeah. think as individuals, they, they do what benefits the hive. Exactly. But like, if I like, push someone out of the way of a of like of a, of a car for example yeah. right that's that's selfless in and of itself that like that provided no benefit to like yep. the organism as a whole so like what separates yeah. our behavior from the behavior of like bees for example or any other species yeah. that would like act as like one coherent unit does that make right. sense yeah yeah so um you're talking about like are humans different? And if so, what makes us different, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Such a simple question. No, I'm sorry. No, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, these are all fascinating questions. These are great questions. Uh, I love, I love, yeah, shut up, Clay. Evolution. So, um, uh, so, so, you know, there's actually one argument that says that humans are not that different, right? We're just one end of the spectrum, right? So if you, if you, if you, and, and there's some support to that theory, it's not just like out of nothing, but um, so if you look at humans genetically closest neighbors, uh, which are like, say for example, the Neanderthals or other homo species. Uh, so humans are homo sapiens sapiens. So, um, humans have actually either absorbed our nearest neighbors into our genetic hole um, or killed them. And there's like, you know, there's a lot of uh, competing theories about which that might be. Uh, but either way, so if you look at other animal species, that's not the case. So now there have been certain historically certain events that helped along human evolution to to be more advanced so one of the thing is opposable thumb so once we actually got an opposable thumb uh, the range of movements that we had to execute increased exponentially and so our brain sizes actually consequently increased a ton so because of yeah, thumbs? because of the devolu of the evolution of the opposable thumb. Yeah. How long does that even like? How long does evolution? Obviously, it takes a long time. But like, did like did they like start very slowly growing thumbs and like oh these nubs like they weren't like full <laughs> thumbs little, and they were just like little nubs like oh these little nubs like have some potential. I'm gonna roll with this. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> like it kept going. Evidence. No, no, it doesn't yet. Your thumb doesn't just grow one day. No, you're like, correct. Yeah, I need these. Um, 
There it is. So, I mean, it's hard to do those experiments because evolution happens over the scale of millions of and hundreds of thousands of years. And um, all we have right now for as, in terms of evidence are fossils and bones. And um, there's only so much you can tell. Uh, but, you know, animals have, have become very, uh, and all animals and all brains, I think one of the, the main, like, function of a brain is to really navigate our 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 environment successfully and then reproduce successfully so a lot of brain power actually has gone into evolving functions capable of that so like dolphins they're mammals but they've developed flippers to survive in the ocean you know they don't have hands they don't have thumbs um, and, you know, so it's really like depending on what our needs were at the time. And so there was some kind of evolutionary advantage or pressure to be able to, I don't know, say climb trees, right, to escape from predators, for example. And then over hundreds of thousands of years, maybe one digit moved slowly further and further apart, you know, and then I, I have no idea. This is you know, one hypothesis of how that might happen. So it's like, yeah, so it's behavioral needs that drive some adaptations that then become more reinforced over time and inheritable. And then that turns into a trait. Again, over all of these things happen over uh, millions of years. And then once that happened, of course, concurrently as well, uh, it's not just like the thumb didn't just appear one day. The brain also didn't just increase in size one day. So it's now like it had to do these computations. And the only way it could do that, those computations efficiently, was by increasing the number of neurons and, and cells that were dedicated to that process. And then another one in human evolution in particular, there's two. So there's um, not one. Uh, one is... Um, uh, the fact that we're social animals and we actually need to remember who did what to us because, um, you know, like you don't want to go help a person who tried to kill you yesterday and take your fruit. You know, this is whatever it was or or your meat. So so you needed to, like, remember faces. You needed to remember, um, like things about the species. So one thing, for example, the humans are, I think, the only species with white around our eyes, um, the actual eye. And so that's because now with the white around the eye, it's easy to tell where we're looking. And now where we're looking is an important social cue. Like when I'm talking to you, I'm looking at you, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm off looking somewhere else, when you're talking to me, that's a social cue that I'm not paying attention to you. And so those kinds of things evolved over time because we're social species. And, a, and, and another one is the evolution of language and communication and sophisticated communication. And um, then, of course, um, uh, recording that communication by writing. So all of these things really helped human evolution along to be um, different from other animals and um, especially writing, you know, recording things. So that now gives our species the ability to build upon knowledge. The entire scientific endeavor is uh, built upon knowledge. So just to give you a little anecdote, um, you know, my, my um, doctoral thesis was on long-term memory. And uh, I like the fir entire first chapter of my thesis was that looking at the history of how people studied memory and like the ancient Greeks before they had any kind of experimental technology, they thought inside your brain was a wax, right? So it was all like a wax. What? And like, every time you like, yeah, you, you had these experiences. It was like stamping a memory onto the wax and that's how you remembered things. Well, I suppose and it's so, like, just like they, they explain away things with stuff they already know though. Cause like, even yeah. like how they practiced um, like polytheism and they had all these, yeah. it's like, so like they would like, I don't, I don't even know. I mean, it's Egyptians, but like Ra, like the sun God, right? Like, mm -hmm. okay, there's this deity that controls the sun. Right. And if we're mm -hmm. good to the sun God, the sun comes up. That's why it keeps coming up. But then mm -hmm. like science is just like, 
nah dog and so yeah. it's always dude. there Naughty. yeah, yeah. But, like they didn't know that there. they but they knew of this this mystical being that controlled it so that was just like how they explained it like oh that yeah. oh dude that's just raw like yeah like oh okay cool yeah so, and so like imagine that if we couldn't write that down and store that knowledge every generation would have to realize that for themselves like oh shit there's a bird controlling this yeah. But since we're yeah. talking about remembering things, we're not the only animal that can remember faces, right? No, we are not. No, no, no. Right. Yeah, most uh, there are lots of social animals, um, and animals are pretty good at um, recognizing at least the members of the species that are essential for their survival. So, for example. Even like bears, so bears are notoriously antisocial, uh, but bears, to a certain extent, do still recognize their own infants, um, mm. their own, because that's whom they're taking care of. That's right? a good person to remember. And they're, yeah. And they're like, yeah. animals are like brutal to their infants, too, because I was just reading an article that lions, when they, when they bear cubs, they got like two years or something, and then the mom's just like, all right, see you later. And if like the mom dies, then the kids are screwed too. Or if like the mom gets sick or something, and and no, and lions like won't come along, and just be like, oh, there's these orphaned lions. Let me take care. They're just like, no, nah, all right, good luck, bro. Like yeah. that's a meal later. That leads me to a question you may or may not know the answer to. Mm-hmm. Why do human infants take so long to develop and become independent when yeah. animals can do it so short? Like calf comes out, it's walking yeah. in two hours and knows so instinctual yeah a baby's like what <laughs> for like what four is years this place for four years it's a very interesting question and i wish i could just say i know the answer to that fully mm-hmm. uh but i think so i don't uh know the full answer to that it's uh, okay you can speculate I, I do think yeah thank you <laughs> i do think that um it's one way to help our brains learn other things and not just because our, our our brains are tremendously active in the first few years of our lives and there's a lot for human babies to learn a lot more for human babies to learn yeah. than other species that's true um, and so um it's you know like there's been evolution of all kinds of systems to support that including the whole notion of falling in love that evolved um, so that parents would stay together long enough um, for the infant to no longer be vulnerable because they can't walk, because they can't see well. Um, and so, you know, that whole, I'm, I'm talking about the brain circuitry for mm-hmm. this, like, you know, falling in love phenomenon. Um, and so... Yeah, so I think it's it's there's a tremendous there's critical periods in brain development um, that have been identified. So like um, things like learning to associate uh, shapes with movements, right? So like a good example is if you look at a spotted cow, right? Um, it's got all these shapes. So a baby would look at it and only see shapes because that's where the light information is going into the eye. So if it has like black and white spots, it'll look at all the edges. But it doesn't know that that is one object, right? And so you know that it's an object because it moves together as an object. So like if a cow walks across the screen, it's not just like two little spots, the whole object kind of moves together. So there's all these things that the brain kind of needs to learn. Same for language, right? So you can think about sounds as just being a babble of frequencies. But then to then go from a babble of frequencies to like, this is speech, but this is not just speech. This is my parents' voice. So there's a lot of those things that babies are constantly learning and their brains are incredibly active. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons it's just, you know, it takes time to learn those things. And that's why babies are kind of vulnerable for so long. But that's, again, my speculation. Are you telling me that my children 
nieces, nephews, friends, kids were driving down the highway. And I'm like, look, cows. And they're like, what? It's just shit. It's no, just yeah, but, mobs out there. Yeah, so every time you're saying cow and pointing, so when you point, they're going to look, mm-hmm. right? So you point and then look, and they're getting that information that that object is moving together. So if I was so like, yeah. look, chickens. They would just throw yeah. thinking that chicken. chickens were cows. Yeah. Well, I mean, so yeah. Gonna, like, like, look at other languages, though, because, like, other languages, a cow is not a cow. It's, like, it's whatever whatever language cow is. They look at it, and they say a word. And it's, it's, like, that's called, I think it's, um, what, like, successive approximation. Something like that. It's, like, you, um, like, I know, like, it is for dogs. Like, you, like you teach a dog to sit. It's not going to sit, you know, off. Mm-hmm off rip so you you tell it you say sit you've now made a sound the dog recognizes the sound and the dog moves a little bit and you're like oh, okay good job and so now you give it a treat and so yeah. now it associates that sound with what it just did yeah next time you say sit it's going to move around a little bit but you're not going to reward it so it's going to do something else and if it gets closer to that position you're like oh yeah good job and then the closer and closer it gets until it's like that full sit position and it understands that when you say sit and it goes into this position yeah you are now happy Versus like day one when you were starting and it just moved around a little bit that no longer cuts it. So it's yep. it's not like it's not like you say sit and a dog knows what sitting is it's like, oh, OK, I'm sitting, I'm chilling. It's just like, no, I've associated this sound with this action and yeah. now I get rewarded for it. So is yep. it kind of like that with babies, too? And maybe Absolutely. it's a little bit more sophisticated with babies. But um, what what part of the brain separates that? It's, it's like a cow, you know it's there and it's just like oh dude grass and then that's all it is yeah Yeah. so what part of the brain does what so there's like parts of the brain that does visual processing and then there's a whole pathway because like even so most sensory definitely visual and um auditory and we think more um are actually separated into two streams of processing so one of them is the the what, right? What am I looking at, right? Um, and then, of course, you need to go into like the the understanding and the conscious perception of it, or what am I listening to? Mm. And then the second one is the where, and that's more important in a certain sense because it's for your body and your motor areas to know how to interact with it. So one example is that, you know, you might know that, you know, this phone is uh, 10 centimeters from my computer, right? But that's actually not important for me to interact with either. Everything has to be egocentric coordinates. So to in order to interact with my computer right now, I need to know how far the keyboard is from my fingertips. And in order to interact with my phone, again, I need to know and in order to know that, I, my brain needs to know where my hand is respect, with respect to my, my head and my eyes, which is where right. all this information is coming from. The same for the phone or any object that you're interacting with. So anything that you see simultaneously and anything that you hear, it's being processed by these two streams kind of independently. And they've done some pretty cool and interesting, um, although unfortunate, because it's uh, experiments done with patients who've been in accidents or whatever, who end up or or have infections or some kind of brain injury, who've lost um, the ability to, to process information in one of those streams, right? And so there are people who have no problem at all interacting with objects and doing the correct thing. Like they're going to tap on a keyboard. They're going to, you know, pick up a glass of water. But then if you ask them to tell you what it is, they're unable to do so, for example. Um, And so that's how we know it's based on those kinds of studies that we know that that's how the brain is doing these things. Um, So I might have lost track of your original question as I went off on a tangent to answer this. When you have a conversation with someone that, and I'm, I'm, I'm right there with them that don't know a whole lot about how the brain works. Like we just mm-hmm. like know very basic things about the brain. Mm-hmm. I always hear people say like, oh, higher brain function is like comes from the frontal lobe and other animals don't have that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's now just I like, remember, that's yeah. why, that's why they can't do Uh-oh. this or that. Like, 
like a human is like constantly taking in the world around them and processing information yeah. and putting meaning to everything. But you yeah. have an animal like Boomer's not sitting here taking in the look at it. he's on the floor like thrashing around like it's it's his brain isn't processing things the way I'm right. processing them. So right. is there like a physical part of the brain that inhibits right. that versus like enables that? Yeah. So there've been a there've been a few places. So the there are places that there's a place in the temporal cortex right here that's called the seat of uh, consciousness that we think that's where conscious perception the really happens. The seat of consciousness. Yep. Oh, what so a fucking but then, but then <laughs> it's not necessarily where you're making all these higher order decisions, right? So decision making and like the more sophisticated decision making, all of that is supposed to happen in the frontal lobe, um, indeed. And that's where your personality um, is also supposed to like really originate from, although there's, you know, anyway, um, it's a little bit hard to say that definitively because when we probe the brain, we're looking at it at a certain level, right? And then, but then the whole is usually greater than the sum of its parts. So I might look at it at the network level, right? So the network level being my ears, my, my ear, the information going into my ear is going to the auditory nerve. The auditory nerve is then taking it into the brainstem. Um, and then the brainstem, for example, does things like sound localization. So that means, so if you hear a sound and it's slightly louder on the right than the left, then your head is going to turn right because that's where the sound is coming from. So that's, you know, just, and so what, what your brain is, brainstem is there doing there is actually just doing millisecond level comparison of these two sound streams coming in and seeing which one is coming in first. And then directing your head. So, so yeah, so all of these at the network level, you can look at it at the cellular level. You can look at it at the subcellular level. You can look at it. So you can look at it at all these levels and you can do an experiment with a hundred people and then look at the gross effects, right? So this is super organism level. And, um, but then the whole is greater. So, you know, so at one time I'm looking at one or two levels, but we don't really know what the other levels are doing at the same time. And that's just a limitation of how we can probe these questions experimentally. I, I hesitate a little bit to definitely say that, you know, the, the other parts of the brain are not involved in consciousness or, or decision making. But in a lot of studies, the frontal cortex has been, and the orbital frontal cortex has been implicated in higher order decision making, higher order functions, sophisticated thought. Um, and uh, so there was this one study, um, quite famous, the Phineas Gage. Uh, so he was a railroad worker um, and he was doing some work and then uh, with the rod and then it blew up. So the rod basically went through his eye and Whoa. straight out through oh, the I back of his this. skull. Yeah. And so what was really cool is that, I mean, first of all, the fact that he didn't die is amazing. He yeah, lived? He That's lived. Great, he he yeah. lived? Yeah. Yeah. He lived and his personality entirely changed, right? So he started being cruel to animals. He was yelling at us. So he was not that kind of a guy before this accident. And uh, after that, he was, yeah. So his, basically his entire orbital frontal cortex, it went through his eye. So his frontal cortex, his orbital frontal cortex got messed up. And then he had this drastic change in how he saw the world, how he was um, taking decisions and things like that. So, so yeah, there are areas of the brain that, um, and to come back to your original question a little bit, the neocortex or the frontal cortex, um, or is, is the, the newest part evolutionarily speaking. So the brainstem is the oldest part evolutionary speaking of the brain. And this is the biggest in humans yeah. of all the species. I mean, uh, we think that whales and dolphins also have a pretty big um, uh, frontal cortex. But I mean, they're big animals, though. I mean, does that, does exactly. that play into it? They're really big. So Yeah, so the brain-to-body ratios are not the same. You're absolutely okay. right. There. I have a question about decision-making. I teach a self-defense class, okay. and there's a little bit about decision-making and how the brain ties into that. 
And every time I teach this class, I get imposter syndrome because I'm like, what do I know about the brain? Right. I know how to make decisions, but that's that's easy. Right. Have you heard the term <clears throat> or am I speaking out of my ass when I say OODA loop? Do you know what that means? No. Okay, cool. I thought so. So observe, <laughs> orient, decide, act. That is what that means. And basically it means that like we observe what's happening. We orient to the situation. Mm-hmm. We make a decision of what we want to do. Yeah. And then we act on it. Yeah. And it talks about like stress levels and how it plays into this and that this this whole loop is constantly going on inside of our head all yeah. the time. Yeah. I just wanted to know if that was like a real science thing or if someone just thought of it one day and put it in the curriculum. No, no, I think I think that's yeah, our we're constantly monitoring our environment and making decisions. And uh so there's like constant perception and then we need to know we need to engage our memory system to know things that are familiar and react appropriately. Uh, but no, that's, yeah, our brains are con- c- continuously doing that, yeah. Is, um, so so is, are those parts of the brains, like, absent in other animals, or are they just not as developed? Yeah, so the frontal cortex, for example, it's the, when I say evolutionarily new, like a crocodile doesn't have a big frontal cortex, but they have an excellent brainstem, uh, <laughs> you know? So brainstem... Wait, so, so animals will have, like, stronger parts of the brains than us? Um, it depends on what they need to do behaviorally. Yeah. Cause I can't yeah. imagine like what a crocodile would like one up me in like intellectually, you know, body movement. It's, it, it might not be intellectual those or, or what we define as intellectual. But, uh, for example, uh, there are things that a lot of animals can do that humans absolutely can't. Um, so one of them, for example, is um, like bats that can do echolocation. So they are actually listening to um, ultrasounds and actually dogs can listen to them, too. So a lot of dog whistles, humans use them, but we can't hear the sound because the sound range is in the ultra ultrasound frequency range. Um, another example is um, pit snakes. Um, they have something called a pit organ. Um, absolutely fascinating. Basically, they can do um, night vision, so they're nocturnal, um, and they're thermal imaging night vision. Um, so what they're mm-hmm. doing is they're able to sense the heat coming off of living things. They're doing temperature sensing, okay. and so they're seeing their world in infrared. That is so crazy to think about. Yeah. It's like predator stuff. I mean, so I'd like say like... I'd say that the pit snake went up to you in that. Yeah, I, yeah, but I, but but humans are like, cause like they were kind of like a jack of all trades, right? Because obviously we don't have infrared vision. I Master might, of you none. don't know that. Master of none. But like humans' eyes can adjust incredibly well in the dark. Yeah, but there are nocturnal animals that can do even better. Um, right. That's what I'm yeah. like a jack of all trades kind of thing. Yeah. Versus. So and like, also, why... humans are visual. Sorry, not to interrupt you, but humans okay. are visual animals. Um, and so if we start moving to other sensory modalities like fish, right? Fish have terrible vision, uh, but it's a little it's a little weird if you think about it too long. But essentially, there are a lot of, especially these uh, carp and goldfish, not all kinds of fish, um, goldfish and a couple of other species, their entire bodies are taste buds. So they have taste buds all along their bodies, their mouths, everywhere. And so the way that they orient towards things is by tasting the water around them. How do you even know that? How do do you you test that? I do not like that. How do you (laughs) test that? Like, yo, this goldfish is tasting everything. So because they don't, they have uh, taste receptors all along their bodies. Like, you know what a taste receptor looks like? Yeah, it's actually in my book. Yeah, taste receptors. And uh, is it just a commonality? Just... Is your book, is your yeah, book they, they teaching? Hold on okay. a second. Okay. Jaya wrote a book for children in neuroscience. Images. It's going to be great, I'm sure. But Jaya, is your book what? teaching children that fish are taste buds? <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah, it, it, yeah. It's all about animal <laughs> I already have a hard time getting my kids to eat fish. After <laughs> they read the book, it's never going to happen. Well, they're not going to eat a goldfish. It's fine. Jaya, it's what not is pretty all about kinds this? of fish. You, look me at, you tell me there's a god. You see this, and what is pretty about this, Jaya? 
that's that? what the fish looks like. What is that? That's all over their I, body. What is? I don't know what you're looking. I yeah, I, I mean, I, and taste receptors. This tell me this isn't what it looks like. Which so it's, it's go to the one next to it. Um, this one. It's like blue one? and purple and um. Oh, this one. Yeah. This one right here. Kind of looks like a wine glass sometimes. Yeah. The, the, on, a, on a molecular level, because you're not seeing this with your naked this, eye, right? No, you're not. Oh, yeah, you would need a microscope. So what is? What is? Yeah. So what does it? Does it look like? Hold on. Maybe I look microscope. It microscope. looks like. It looks um, like actually, a fish I I wish. Oh, I okay, that is really pretty. <laughs> okay, I lied. Yeah, no, you're right, Jai. That is really pretty. It can be really. I think you know the the micro worlds can be really gorgeous. Actually, um, anything that you look yeah. at, it's so different. Have you ever from... seen the videos of like people comparing like nebulas and stuff to, yeah. to structures in the body? Yeah. yeah. So which one is it? Which one of these would you find like on a fish? Ooh, the one your mouse here. is hovering over. It kind of looks like a, a. It's either an intestinal lining or it could be the lining of a tongue. No, the not that, that you... one. Yeah, those are so the ones on top. They're hair cells. Okay, so this. Yeah, okay, I could yeah. I could see that this is like a tongue. That's like a tongue. So is this like what you? This like is that. yeah. So these are these are um. So tongue is a muscular structure. I'm talking about the taste bud itself. These are the um, buds. These little yeah. things. Yeah. Um. I'm wondering if I can share my screen. Yeah, you can. Keep in mind that the mm. picture I'm going to show you, I painted it, so the colors are are oh. artistic, but um, the structures are all. That's fine. Um, the Patreon is getting a deep cut right now. This is a deep cut for the Patreon subscribers. If you're not mm -hmm. subscribed to Let Me Ask You's Patreon, you are missing out on some beautiful taste buds and soon to be beautiful artwork. So this is the taste bud of a fish. This is what's all over their body. Yep. And so and does... in ours too. So so essentially, these little hair thingies that you're seeing on top, they're sensing. So up here is going to be either your tongue or the skin cell or wherever the taste bud is sitting. But this is a sensory organ right here. So these little um, uh, hair things or microvilli are are sampling a subset. And then sending signals down and then the neuron is going up here. But there's also like blood cells because you need blood and energy to do anything in your body. Um, so, yeah. So and, and then there's different kinds of taste buds. Of course, you have uh, your taste buds and these can be as specialized or general. So these can be sensitive to a class of compounds. Uh, or it can be sensitized um, and responding to a very specific compounds. So like, for example, if you ingest something poisonous, uh, your body might want to immediately um, react and um, spit it out. So you mm. might get like a gag reflex or something because you've ingested something that's bad for you. So there are going to be sensors for, for toxins that are very incredibly specific. And then there are general like, you know, sugars, all kinds of sugars are going to be detected by, by a sugar sensor. So that's crazy to think that everything like nothing is like real, and when I say that, it's just like, yeah, it's just a reaction. <laughs> it's a beautiful segue, Jaya. Let me ask you: Would you say that the human body is a well-built machine? Well-built machine. That like, yeah, that made me. So, so I guess I mean it depends on like what you define as a machine. Like we can certainly do tasks, but I think we're more than machines because of that, right? So like a a machine usually does one thing that it was built for, or two things that it was built for. But the fact that we are creative and we're building things and we're doing going off script, so to speak, because there is no script. Yeah, so I now make the so I, have, I have two theories in mind. Okay. Two neuroscience theories. Okay. Oh, boy. Let me know if you've heard them before or not. I have okay. a brief synopsis of each. Okay. The global <laughs> workspace theory. Okay. No. Have you heard that? No. No. And the theory of embodied cognition. No. I feel like I might have heard of that one, but it was a long time ago, maybe in grad school or something. So global workspace theory, and I'm going to ask you to pick one at the end. So okay. all the scientists and the whole scientist community will judge you based on your answer. Got it. <laughs> the global workspace theory suggests that our consciousness is like a computer program running a computer. 
The computer is our brain, and the program is our consciousness. Mm. This theory suggests that our consciousness is a simulation created <laughs> by our brains. Chai's yeah. not buying it. Okay. <laughs> the theory of embodied cognition suggests that our consciousness is not a simulation. Still, instead, it is embodied in our physical body. This theory suggests that our brain creates our consciousness. Our consciousness is not a program running on a computer. What yeah. do you think? Yeah, so I would pick this latter. And I actually would go one step further. And I think, but this is this is me. This is my theory. It's not. And, and there is some support for it. The other scientists, not everyone, other scientists also believe this. But um, there's a theory that I believe in, which is that uh, consciousness itself is actually a byproduct of uh, what's called mental time travel. Whoa. So it is, it is, it is a physical embodiment. Whoa. Yeah. So mental time travel. So if you, if you remove the word memory, right. And, and as we go through life, our, our brains, all we have access to as the quote unquote truth is this moment, right? So we have the air that we're breathing in right now, the colors that we're seeing right now, the sounds that we're hearing right now in this moment, mm-hmm. Everything else, your past, everything that you've learned, you're actually, it's stored somewhere in your brain. You're not in that moment. You don't have access to that information anymore. You don't see the color of your childhood home anymore. It's stored somewhere in your brain. So in order to access that, you're essentially time traveling back in your mind to see that. And you're in a sense, rebuilding it in your mind. Now, that itself is not debated. It's actually, so when you recall things is when they're very fragile and um, they can be changed. So, because you're essentially rebuilding the memory in your mind. You're rebuilding it because it's not there anymore. And the same thing can be applied to if I ask you where you see yourself five years from now. You know, you can see yourself in a job, you know, that you like. You can see yourself pursuing a hobby that you like. You can see yourself doing this podcast. But again, it's not in the now. Mm -hmm. So again, if you take away the concept of memory, what our brains are doing is from this moment right here, we're projecting ourselves forward in time or we're projecting ourselves backward in time. And in order to do that, we need to have a conscious, per, a conscious perception of the present. Yeah, I, I agree with that because you can you can plant memories in people too. You know, like, I've um, heard I've heard this argument, and I've actually used this argument, and I've never heard it used that well. Oh, yeah, well, thank I, you. Like, have you have you heard of the like the Reykjavik con- uh, confessions? This is a little off topic, but it was um it was in uh iceland i think reykjavik or Mm -hmm. greenland these guys these people went missing and they had some suspects they said that they didn't do it and -hmm. then the police like put them in solitary confinement and you know interrogated them for hours and hours and hours and eventually they were just like yeah i think i actually did kill that guy and they Mm -hmm. believed it but like but that that like memory was like planted in them so that what you're saying definitely makes sense i believe that yeah yeah and and full disclosure uh the mental time travel theory was originally proposed by saint augustine i believe in the 14th century but they knew no what they were talking about yeah. oh, and like they, people were they knew something century. i'm like what yeah it was a, an incredibly sophisticated idea for the time people were killed for those kinds of ideas yeah yeah they were yeah we talked about a little bit about babies and how they mm-hmm. understand things on the list of things that i immediately think babies should understand neuroscience is Towards the bottom, I'm going to be honest. Okay, okay. So what sparked the idea to bring these two fields of babies and neuroscience together? Okay. So I love science communication. Uh, I think philosophically, I've always um, seen myself as a public servant. So, you know, throughout my career, my research, my passion has been funded from taxpayer money. You know, um, not necessarily just in just in the U.S. Wherever I've gone, um, the government or the 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 taxpayer money paid for these research. So I've always considered it 
um, a part of my responsibility back is to make that science accessible to people. Um, and not just accessible because, you know, it's not just that the information is there, but to kind of highlight what's exciting about it and what's interesting about it. But also if it's flawed, to highlight the flaws, you know, just be honest about what it means and doesn't mean and what the scope of the results and discussion mean of any published paper or any new finding and so on. So I've always done a lot of science communication through grad school and beyond and, and helped do like hands-on workshops for kids, um, do like little activities of like how my neurons might communicate, for example, like using the messaging game. Um, and so again, tailoring these activities uh, in an age-appropriate manner, depending on, on what age kids we were working with. Um, at the time. And so that's been a passion. I also volunteer and I just saw that there's a need to make neuroscience accessible to people of all ages because everybody wants to know about themselves and what makes the world tick and what makes them unique compared to the rest of the world. And we all are, you know, our brains are incredibly unique and they've evolved and they've developed to do incredible things that we don't even think about. And so that was the, the real inspiration and motivation for me to write this book. And uh, so I used my training and my experience in both the scientific content and in science communication to put together a, in a way that would appeal to children with lots of animals and animals and their superpowers, essentially. So, um, you know, like I, I gave the example of bats earlier or, or butterflies, you know, monarch butterflies, um, they have what's called compound eyes. They don't even have um, uh, regular eyes like us. <laughs> Um, and so their eyes are incredibly simple in a way, even though they're called compound eyes. But what they're able to do, so they, the monarch butterflies, you might know, they do this big migration to, to Mexico, uh, from Canada to Mexico, essentially, um, for the winter, and, or to avoid the winter. You might wonder how they do that, you know? How do their brains help them navigate such long distances? And one of the ways they do it is by... So their compound eyes actually splits up regular light waves into their components. And so even when it's cloudy, um, they can see polarized light. And so they know uh, where the poles are. And so that's how they're what? able to... Yeah. So they can actually see polarized light. And they thought that that was more beneficial than thumbs? Yes. <laughs> they didn't think it, but yeah, they evolved to see polarized light. And actually, they also can use it in reproduction now because... They, some of these butterflies that can see polarized light and insects, they flash lights that are only visible on certain spectra to their mate to attract their mate that predators cannot see. Because every all like birds and bats, so all of them like to eat butterflies. So um, they, they flash these lights to attract their mates, but avoid the gaze of a predator. So they've, in, they've evolved all of these things in, in incredible, sophisticated ways that are essentially superpowers. So the idea was to highlight all the wonders in nature and also kind of appreciate the diversity of brains and the diversity of abilities. I think in our culture and society, we've, we've moved towards valuing certain kinds of intelligences and certain kinds of abilities over others, which are not necessarily too true. You know, mm -hmm. people who are tactile can be incredibly intelligent and produce things that someone who's visual or auditory might not be able to think of. So, so my goal really was to, to highlight these two things that, you know, brains are, are diverse and we should learn to appreciate them with uh, lots of colorful animals and, and neural systems thrown in so, there for fun. When I read the promo for your book, mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie, I was intimidated. Because okay. being a parent, I didn't think I was prepared for the amount of but why questions okay. that I would get. But okay. why, Daddy? But why, Mommy? You know? Okay. But it sounds like you fixed that problem. So I have, yeah. So so the way I did this this book is that the the main content is going to be very um, 
children focused. So it's written in a poem format um, with not too many jargons, but some words in there. There's nothing wrong in increasing a child's vocabulary with some technical terms. Uh, but at the end of the book, there's actually an extended glossary for adults and older siblings or anyone who's really interested of any age um, to read up more about these systems. So the glossary goes over all kinds of things like, you know, what are the, some of the current applications of studying such a topic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I talked about pit organs earlier. So this is actually, uh, and actually both echolocation and pit organs and a lot of others have actually inspired military technology quite a bit. So night vision goggles is one, uh, sonar technology, uh, you know, that's basically echolocation and finding yeah. things through sound. So, you know, so I go into all of those kinds of details in the glossary, um, not for children, but for caregivers and parents and teachers to read and then explain to their children in the way that best for the child to understand just giving kids a new way to explore the world i don't think there's anything wrong with it i'm for it can you imagine where i'd be if i'd learned about neuroscience at the ripe yeah. old age of five dude i wouldn't i wouldn't be here the illustrations <laughs> in your book i've seen some of them on your website mm -hmm. and i think i see some of them behind you now during mm -hmm. the interview mm -hmm. yeah it, it's true that you wrote this book with mm -hmm. your neuroscience expertise mm -hmm. and you also illustrated Yes. Where can people find your book? So it's not out yet, but it's going to come out soon. Um, I published, I've self-published it through Archway Publishing, and it should be out at the end of March or beginning of April. So you can go to my website, uh, babysensesbook.com, um, and as soon as it's available, I will be posting links to buy it through Amazon or through um, other venues. Okay. And is there anything else that people can find you on? Um, do you like, do you do lectures on social media, anything like that? People can, can listen to more of your work. Um, I don't do, uh, this is my first time doing something like this. So I really appreciate, thanks for making such yeah. an amazing and comfortable um, space for me to talk mm -hmm. uh, about some of my passions here. I'm really grateful. Um, and so, but you can find me, I have an Instagram account. My uh, handle is Jaya underscore Vishwanathan. Um, I have, uh, yeah, so I'm, I usually post, uh, art, science, art, um, and other things on there. Um, and I have a LinkedIn again, Jaya Vishwanathan. It'd be so cool if you posted like, um, like stuff under a microscope and then explained what it was. Cause that looking at a taste bud that just blew my mind. I never yeah. thought to do that. <laughs> yeah, so I have, I can, I can share a few more of those. Um, so one of my favorites uh, in my own book, although I shouldn't really say I have favorites, is the narwhal's tooth. I'm not sure if people know about narwhals, but they're these incredibly rare Arctic uh, whale, uh, essentially, and they are they're actually, rare? yeah, yeah, because they're they live in the in the Arctic, so. Yeah. They actually are the inspiration for the whole unicorn thing. Um, I would hope they're other... rare. They're terrifying. <laughs> they're also really cool. Like I understand they're that they're really, like limited really to a certain cool. ecosystem, but like, is there yeah. is there just not a lot of them in the Arctic as well? Yeah, there are not a lot of them. Yeah, they're just they've also been hunted a lot, unfortunately. Oh, but yeah, um, so they, you know, for a long time because you know we didn't have access to them. Uh, scientists didn't really know what the, what the tooth were used for or the teeth were used for. There might still be other functions for it, but one function they have recently discovered is that it's actually a salinity detector. And so essentially... It's a tooth? It's not a horn, it's a tooth? It's a tooth, yeah. So they don't have... Isn't that crazy? What? They have no teeth in their mouth and they have one tooth Sometimes two sticking out of their head that's like six feet long. I found a picture of a narwhal with teeth. I don't like it, but it's, it's there. I mean, uh, I have. So I, I don't think it's not real. It's not real. So this is my this is my painting of a narwhal that's in my book and with its calf. Mm -hmm. And so you know, one of the the function that they've discovered for it is their salinity detectors. So essentially, um, because they're whales, they have lungs, um, they don't have gills, so they need to keep coming up for air. And um, because they live in 
polar climates, the water temperatures can drop very quickly and then the ice will close over and just freeze over. Mm. And then they get trapped under the ice and they'll just suffocate and die because they can't get to air. And so what the, what the tooth helps them do is when water temperatures drop, it changes the salinity and it changes the pressure. And so they know to, to leave. So, yeah, so they know to leave. So that's what one function that they've found. So like that's highlighted in my book, for example. So, and, you know, if you think about it, human teeth, we can also, it also kind of senses temperature, right? Like if you eat something too hot, your teeth, your teeth can sting. Or if you eat if you eat something too cold, right? Yeah. If you have sensitive teeth, it can actually hurt you. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think in like I'm trying to like give you like a good like let's say like fifty thousand years, like what a human could look like in that time frame. Like are there theories about like what about things that we would develop? I mean, I can't even speculate. Like human humans are evolving at such a rapid rate and like the internet is it's almost scary right because it's like really hastened our global connectivity in a way so it's kind of like what happened with the industrial revolution our life completely changed or like with a, a, just even going from hunter gatherer to an agricultural community and that's when like money like we invented money which is such a weird thing to have invented as a species like no other species in the world has things like money so do you think that uh, will evolve in a way that like makes our bodies more comfortable to like being in an environment where we use technology because like obviously like a lot of the functions of our bodies like it's very few are like going out and doing like hunting and gathering like what yeah. bodies were meant to do originally yeah and it's a little sad but i see it happening already so for example with uh you know especially with the pandemic everybody's now become more and more of like um or, or some people, let's say, have gotten less comfortable with uh, real like face-to-face -face conversation and communication skills because they're just doing everything virtually now. And they, you know, some people have trouble making eye contact and talking to people when before they used to be able to do so, right? So there's like all yeah. these changes that are happening already as we shift away from or shift towards a, a more virtual uh, environment and virtual simulations are getting scarily real. And I, I'm not even saying this might come true, but if I had to speculate in like, I don't know, like more, yeah, more than 50,000 years, uh, maybe humans will become some kind of super organism like the beehive where we're really? all, we'll just kind all of work connected. for each other. We're all connected. Yeah. But I, I can't even say for sure if that's going to be true because Again, we're we're evolving at such a rapid rate with like yeah. now there's chat GPT and like who knows what that's going to do in terms of like jobs and people acquiring new skills and all of that. So for <laughs> more information about animal superpowers and the neuroscience of the world and how amazing it is, be sure to keep a close eye on our socials where we will be sharing Jazz's book when it releases. If you're a return listener, we thank you so much. Your patronage is so greatly appreciated. If you're a new listener, welcome to the show. Congratulations. You first listened to yeah. the episode where we had an actual expert, which is great. And hit us up on social media. Let us know if you guys want us to discuss a certain topic or you want to see a certain type of guest or you guys have questions. Like We have 1,100 views so far, like total on the podcast. One yeah, of you has great. to have like a burning question. Some you of you have answered. questions. Yeah. Jai, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Jai. Fun. It's been an absolute pleasure and super interesting. So super, super interesting. Your... Before you yeah. go, I do have a confession to make. Jake, the last 13 episodes of this podcast have been a study of your brain. And now it's finally time for the doctor to decide. Did I, am I doing Should we good? institutionalize him or is he safe for the public? Am I doing good? <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> safe. He's safe. Keep asking the questions because that's the only way you can get the answer. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Jake is safe for the public. I'm Maybe safe. not all the time, but at least 80% of the time. Right now, in the comfort of my own home, I'm good. I'm safe for the public. Check us out on Spotify, <laughs> Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there to fill your ear holes with good, good entertainment. Until yeah. next time. 
Thank you so much. No, really, thank you both so much for creating such an uh, an awesome environment and comfortable to to talk about all kinds of topics. This is great. I look forward to listening to future episodes as well. Thank we really so appreciate much, that. Thank you so yeah. much. Is there a neurosciencical? What's the word I'm looking for here? Is there a neuro neuroscientific? That I, yeah, thank you, Jake. Is there a neuroscientific reason that I see Jake's mustache and I just want to shave it off? You said neuro. You said neurosciencical. Is it a problem with my brain? Is it a problem with my brain or is it a problem with Jake? Because I think it's a problem with Jake. I no, think you, you guys just, need to do an experiment to find out. You just said you heard neuro it, I'm coming for you. It's not We're a word. Find out if it's your mustache I'm not or my brain, go. and your mustache is coming error. off. My 